You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. I love the final statement by the narrator, and that said, the project is beautiful. It's been transformed. What was once discarded and unused has become a masterpiece. It represents the mind and skill of the master craftsman. I just, I just love those words. But it fits right in with where we're at in this series on the kingdom of God. And the idea here is that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And that those who surrender their lives to Jesus are being transformed. They're being changed. And that we're members of his family and we're members of his kingdom. God is working in all of us. Amen? Hey, uh, I just want to acknowledge uh, David Berry um, for leading. Julie is on vacation this weekend. Um, we thought we'd give her a Sunday off. <clears throat> doesn't happen often. Uh, but uh, today's one of those days. But uh, David uh, is at our Cornelius campus, oversees um, family ministries there, as well as uh, adult discipleship, small groups and stuff. And Betsy works directly with David and her role there in the Cornelius campus. And so uh, he had a day where he didn't have anything else to do. Um, So we said, hey, come on up and uh, lead for us. I'm just grateful for his willingness. And he's been here before. I mean, he's filled in for me sometimes preaching. And so again, just... One of the, it's one of the benefits of being part of, mo, of three campuses um, within one church is we get to trade sometimes. And uh, um, so it's just a great thing, a great blessing to be a part of that. <clears throat> so if um, you were to look at my notes here on my iPad, <clears throat> um, you'd find out that they're pretty detailed. The, the fact is, I'm just, I just don't have the ability to wing it. I just, I've, I've always admired people and just get up and just talk. And it's like everything is perfect at all. I don't know how they do that. I'm just a really uh, little envious um, and jealous, but I can't do that. So for me, as I'm thinking through the sermon and the outline, and I'm thinking and I'm praying, and I'm, I'm really, I'm saying, God, what is it you want me to say? What is it you want me to say? And so as I'm working through that, then I'm capturing those thoughts and I'm writing them down largely because I don't want to forget so if I'm working on this, you know, sermon on Wednesday, I realize you know, the thought I have Wednesday, if I, Thursday, Friday, so that's four days. By that time, I'm probably going to forget that. So I write it down and, and I write it down in pretty good detail. But it's also about the fact that I want to say things in a way that are effective for you to hear. If you ever hear sometimes they're a speaker, they're a good speaker, very, very good communicator, but they're always off on tangents. And they just, you know, you're always on these rabbit trails and things. And I realized I don't want to be that guy. I want to be able to communicate a point and make the point and, and do it in a way that you can say, all right, I get that. I understand that. And so if you actually look at my iPad, you'll see that some of the fonts are bold. Um, some of them are highlighted and some of them are in different colors, all in a way that just helps me communicate in a way that I think would be effective and that I think that God has impressed upon me. So here's the thing. I'm pretty confident, almost absolutely certain, actually, that Jesus never wrote down a sermon note in his entire life. (laughs) Every talk he gave, everything he ever said was extemporaneous. Now, many consider the Sermon on the Mount to be one of the greatest sermons ever given. And he did it with no notes whatsoever. Now, Mind you, this isn't just a rehearsed TED Talk, okay? If you ever watch TED Talks on YouTube or something, and these people are just, I mean, they're brilliant the way they're designed, laid out. 
But, but they're memorized. They've rehearsed that. They've been, the voice inflections and the way they stand, I mean, that's been rehearsed um, time and time again until they get it right. This was first tie, first time try it. All right, we're going to, he can't redo it. This is it. <clears throat> no notes. So as Jesus is beginning the Sermon on the Mount, and again, we've been looking for the last few weeks at the Beatitudes, blessings, eight different blessings he gave. And I think as the people began settling in around him, he saw men and women who were burdened by the cares of life. And so I think he looks over here and he sees a young family and the kids are dressed poorly. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he looks over at the other side of the crowd and he sees an older woman there by herself and you know, maybe she's probably a widow. And he says, while looking at her, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <clears throat> and then he looks over another part of the group and the other part of the crowd, and he sees a young man and who's small in stature. And you can tell he's not very confident, and he doesn't have a whole lot going for him. And he says to him, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And he looks over another part of the crowd and he continues scanning around and he sees a young woman and he can tell that she's had a rough life. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will see God. Then he looks over on the side and he sees a group of Pharisees and they're standing there with their arms folded, just attitude oozing out of them. And he said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. See, Jesus wasn't reading from prepared notes. He was in the moment. He was reading the crowd, and he was on a mission that day. He had one purpose. He wanted the people to know that a new day was dawning. Something's changed here. Things are not going to be the same. And the Beatitudes, or the blessings, these eight blessings, were intended to get the attention of his listeners. And as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, that many of these statements were very unexpected in light of cultural norms. It, it, they weren't what we would have expected him to say, and it weren't, they weren't what the listeners weren't expecting Jesus to say. So today we're going to finish this part of the series with the last of the three blessings, the three Beatitudes. Um, so let's read together on the screen. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'm so grateful, uh, God, that uh, Jesus could communicate in in such a way that was effective, not just to his listeners then, but 2,000 years later, we're still looking at his words and saying, ah, yes, I get that. That helps. And Lord, I pray that this morning is one of those mornings for us as we continue to dig into these a little bit more, that this would be a a day that, uh, Lord, you speak to all of us about what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever observe a child do something they didn't want to do? You know, go clean your room. I don't want to clean your room. Do it. And they're in there, and they're throwing things around, and they're, you may, they, you may be, talk, our kids, you know, some of them, especially our oldest one, he would talk to himself. He's in there, and as, as he's doing it, and, you know, um, so he, the, 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 if you observe the child like this, 
hopefully, yeah, this is, yeah, so you observe a child doing this, and maybe they're doing it physically, but their heart is nowhere in it. Um, their heart didn't align with their behavior. And that's really the point of the sixth beatitude that we just read. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus is pointing out that it was possible to do the right things, but with the wrong motives. In fact, just a few verses later, as, as, he gets, as he's continuing working on through the Sermon on the Mount, literally just probably two or three minutes after he, he says this, he, uh, he says this in Matthew chapter 6. Examine your motives to make sure you're not showing off when you do your good deeds, only to be admired by others. Otherwise, you will lose the reward of your heavenly Father. So when you give to the poor, don't denounce it and make a show of it just to be seen by people like the hypocrites in the streets and in the marketplace. Whenever you pray, be sincere and not like the pretenders who love the attention they receive while praying before others in the meetings and on the street corners. Believe me, they've already received their reward. See, people in that day and time, I haven't seen anybody do it here, but if the offering basket went by and they were going to put in their bag of coins, they would jingle the coin bag as they put it in. So everyone around them could see, wow, that's a lot of coins in that bag. And here it thud in the basket, all the while getting attention that, see how much money I'm giving? I'm really spiritual. I'm good. Or you have people who would pray. And so prayer, we typically look at it as more of a uh, solitary experience, or it's a one-on-one with you and God. But sometimes these, the people would pray in the middle of the street corner out loud. And they didn't need the, the megaphone type of thing. But they're praying these long, eloquent prayers, again, for the sole purpose of others would look at them and say, wow, look how spiritual they are. Look what a, this must be a real godly person because of their behavior. And Jesus is saying with his, this uh, beatitude, he said, if, if, if people's attention is what you want, if you want their approval, if you want them to think well of you, good job. You've done it. Mission accomplished. But your actions have nothing to do with honoring God. There's nothing in there that you're doing. Now, to be clear, Jesus wasn't saying stop doing pray. He wasn't saying, he wasn't saying that you shouldn't give. He wasn't saying that you shouldn't pray. He was just saying, get your heart and mind in the right place. And in the kingdom of God, to be pure in heart is to possess a heart that is pure in motive and which exhibits single-mindedness and spiritual integrity. Psalms 24, David, the, the psalmist writes, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The second part of the beatitude, for they will see God, is actually really interesting. Now, you have to remember that Jesus knew that all the people that were listening to him were familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we we have this one experience between God and Moses. When Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, where God said to him very clearly, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So that story, that account was very well known. And so to see God actually meant certain death. You couldn't see God and live. So why was God saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God? Again, his listeners like, wait a minute. 
See, pure in heart, that's a good thing. But now, see, God, I'm going to die. Why would you connect those two? Why? And that wasn't necessarily received in that way. But like most of the blessings that Jesus was saying, the, the, the reward he's talking about is in the future. This will be, this will be, this will happen. And what he was saying is that under the law, you can't see God and live. In the kingdom of God, you will see God. Now, here's the thing. This wasn't just kind of this nice idea. Oh, wow, I get to see God. And, you know, kind of this, this uh, like you get to see a, a famous sports person or you know, maybe some kind of a, an entertainer that you admire or something. To, here's what we have to understand is to see God, to be in his presence is incomparable to anything else. Really, our language doesn't have the words to adequately describe what that would be or, or feel like or mean. We get glimpses of what that is here and now, time and again here, here on earth. But for they will see God, what Jesus was saying at that point, that's better than anything you can comprehend. Better than anything you can comprehend, the pure in heart will see God, and that's the best. So Jesus makes that point, and he's continuing his scan around the crowd, and he's looking to see who's listening and pay attention, and he sees a group of skinheads and they've got tattoos and swastikas all over the body and they're standing off. No, not actually. But he saw, he saw the first century equivalent standing off the side, a group of religious zealots. And again, this is me. This is, this is me. This is not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say this. Okay. This is me understanding what is the context for this passage. Because the, the, many of these Beatitudes, they're random. They're, they're, they're kind of arbitrary, if you will. So what was, the, what was happening there? And so for me is, because this is an extemporaneous sermon, because he's interacting with the crowd in some ways by their responses, as he's identifying certain groups of people, he's speaking to them as to what is God saying to you. And part of the group that was there was very prevalent. We don't hear much about them. They were known as religious zealots. And zealots, we think of just somebody who's really passionate about something, but it actually was a name of identified as a group. They were religious zealots. The religious zealots were revolutionaries who hoped through violence to bring into existence the kingdom of God. Those of you who are, are familiar recent history when the uh, United States was in Iraq, remember that whole thing? Remember ISIS came in? They had control for a while. And what did they do? They established what is known as a caliphate which essentially it was a government structure that would rule over all Muslims. This was, this was the central um, power point. Um, those who were identified with this, and again, you remember, we've seen this, is that, that to prove their devotion to God, they destroyed everything and killed everyone who disagreed with their ideology, even other Muslims, if they weren't of the same sect. But then their minds, they weren't doing something bad. They were doing something good. They were proving to God that they were worthy of being sons of God. Jesus looks at that group and he says directly, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Violence has no place in the kingdom of God. Here's the thing, though. Jesus is not only talking to zealots. He's talking to everyone. 
in that crowd. He's talking to us today as well. Their mess- See, you've got to realize their message, the message of the zealots, would be appealing to people who felt oppressed, who felt like they had been, been overburdened with the politics and the military and the Rome and just the religious leaders. And so the idea that somebody or some group is going to change all that could actually be very appealing. And I notice the same types of things in our own culture today that People, the level of frustration and angst that people feel is sometimes palpable. In the most literal sense, peacemakers make peace. They don't fan the flame by sharing posts that are untrue or inflammatory just because it fits a personal bias. The basic idea of making peace is to join together. Either you preserve the peace where it already exists, or you work to bring people together where there's division. Peacemakers recognize when there are differences of opinion, they, they, they admit that, they recognize that, but they're willing to set aside the differences and, um, and love one another in spite of their differences. Um, at our men's breakfast yesterday, um, part of our devotional time, we're talking about anger and uh, just you know what the Bible says and how we deal with it. And amazing, none of the guys there ever have anger issues. So um, <laughs> message has been me, but... Um, um, Here's what I was really, 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 I don't know who actually verbalized it first, but what very became very clear is that the statement was to me that instead of fighting the person, fight for the relationship. Which means, all right, yeah, I'm mad at you, but I love you and I care enough about you that I want to deal with this in a healthy way. You know, I'm not going to just throw out these emotional, you know, hand grenades and just let it explode. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to uh, use the destructive words, the destructive actions. I, I care about this relationship. I'm going to fight for the relationship. I disagree with you, but I want to deal with this in a way that preserves that relationship. See, for Jesus, peacemaking is not avoiding conflict. Jesus didn't avoid conflict, did he? Peacemaking is caring enough about a relationship to have the hard conversations. Peacemaking is risky because it takes two to make peace. And as Christ followers, we recognize that ultimate peace comes only when we are reconciled to God. That's why Paul in his letter to Ephesians, he refers to faith as the gospel of peace. So as Jesus is continuing talking to the crowd and looking and and just seeing who's there, his eyes finally settle right in front of him on the 12, his 12 apostles, those closest to him and maybe a few others that are part of that immediate close group, his closest followers, and he saves his last blessing for them. He looks at them and looks straight in their eyes and says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, although Jesus was just starting his ministry, this literally was his first, we've got the wedding thing happening that happened before this, but this was really his first time being. And so it's the very beginning, but he knew, he knew he was headed to the cross. And he knew that those who followed after him would be persecuted by government and religious leaders as well. They would suffer at the hands of people who didn't understand. He knew that they would be treated unfairly and he knew that their lives would not be easy. History records that at least 11 of the 12 died violent deaths because of their faith, because of their proclamation for Jesus Christ. 
they endured that simply because they chose to follow Jesus as a member of God's kingdom. In Acts chapter 5, we read the account of when Peter, and it just says some of the other apostles, it doesn't identify them, but it says, um, when they, the religious leaders, had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, get this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, for Jesus. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Who does that? Who, who endures persecution and punishment and says, wasn't that cool? You know what just happened? Really, that was like the best. But yet that's kind of the impression we have. But not because they enjoyed the experience, but because of what it meant. What it, that persecution signified something to them. And it signified for them that they were part of God's kingdom. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And in and, 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 and kind of an odd way, that persecution validated that experience for them. So two thoughts here as I wrap up. First one is this. Jesus knew that choosing a life, to live a lifestyle that is grounded in the values of God's kingdom will never be seen as valuable by those outside the kingdom. There will always be various kinds of opposition. And many of us know that to be true. That's just part of what it means to follow Jesus. Paul, later on in his letter to to Hebrews, uh, um, spoke of others who suffered for their faith. So it wasn't just the 12. He said, some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sodden too. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And hear this, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. What Jesus is saying in this last of the Beatitudes, he's letting his disciples and any of those who would would choose to live in God's kingdom, he's saying, listen, remember, persecution is temporary. This life is temporary. The hardships, these things you're dealing with are temporary. God's kingdom is eternal. You're making choices. You're living your life, not because it's easy now, but because of what it will do in eternity. Second thought is this. As fully devoted Christ followers, even though persecution is a given, we must also see it as a reminder of the gift of the kingdom. So after telling his followers that they'd be persecuted, Jesus looked up and speaking then to the entire crowd, I think he finished his blessings with this. He said, blessed are you when people insult you. They persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the blessing, this feeling of joy is possible because it comes with confidence 
that the future will in fact happen as Jesus said. That confidence produces the joy to face the hardship that you would be enduring at the present time. So to Jesus, the listeners of Jesus, and as he's talking, what he was trying to communicate in all of these Beatitudes and through the Sermon on the Mount is that salvation has begun. A new day is dawning. The time, your time has come. All these things you've been experiencing, it's about to change. The kingdom is here and things are changing. And the assurance of the future was meant to transform the present existence. It's that hope of what's to come. It's the expectation of what's to come that gives us the ability to not just cope with the situations we're in, but to actually find joy in the midst of our transitions, or in the midst of our um, troubles and difficulties. Imagine that. Now, it's one thing to look at the Bible and say, yeah, look at them. They made a choice and they suffered things. But what does that mean for us when I just got a medical diagnosis last week when how how do I find joy in that? Or a relationship that had been part of my life for all these years is now ending. Or my children aren't doing what I thought they would do. They're not making choices. I think... How do we find joy in those things? And what Jesus is saying in all of these is that the joy isn't in the experience itself. The joy comes in knowing that this is not the end. The end is up here, and that's going to be a much, much different day. We're looking to the future, not to the present. And I would suggest that the same is present, regardless of our circumstances, that we can be encouraged. We can find joy. We can find hope and we can find the happiness that we so much desire. It's the hope of things to come that causes us to feel blessed. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.